0: You're listening to Teaching STEM For Real, a podcast dedicated to for real conversations on educational equity in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics education. I'm your host, Dr. Lena bakshi McLean, STEM education disruptor, justice advocate, certified ruffler of feathers, and a wannabe comedian. I'm also the founder of the nonprofit STEM For Real, You want to explore what anti-racist and socially just instruction looks like in our classrooms, schools, and beyond? For real? You're in the right place. Let's dive right in. I may have to pinch myself for this one. I'm about to introduce the Zaretta Hammond. If I was a little quiet, it's because I was starstruck, and she is one of the sweetest, most humble people I know. This episode woke me up. Zaretta Hammond is the author of the book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain, promoting authentic engagement and rigor for culturally and linguistically diverse students and runs the Culturally Responsive Education by Design online PLC a six-month intensive inquiry-based professional learning experience. I'm just blown away at how unabridged, raw, and uncut this interview was. Are you tired of hearing things like, I'm a culturally responsive educator, or I'm participating in the culturally responsive teaching initiative? How can we go beyond the jargon and actually implement this work for real? I can't wait for you all to listen. I am so excited to welcome a woman that does not need any introduction, Ms. Zaretta Hammond. Welcome to STEM for Real and Teaching STEM for Real. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to just start out with, you know, really hearing your journey and what shaped you as the educator that you are today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I so appreciate the work that you guys are doing out in the world. And, you know, so it's great that we can have this conversation. And I could just start with my own experience. You know, I write about it in Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain. But one of the things that I found, particularly uh, why I, you know, am drawn to talking about STEM and STEAM and making it more uh, relevant and accessible to students, uh, particularly girls of color, is it my own experience, right? So that journey in, in many ways began not only because of my mother's choice, we lived in the Hunter's Point area of San Francisco, which was predominantly African-American, changing to include um, Samoan, Tongan, and uh, um, Latino families um, and, you know, was separated from San Francisco. But more specifically to the STEM area, I really enjoyed science when I was in school and in elementary. And when I got to middle school, though, I started to see that kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, segregation, right, tracked into different things. And I do remember uh, two incidents that kind of shaped this journey for me. One was the experience of, excuse me, being uh, picked to be part of our school's um, kind of innovative science project in San Francisco Unified School District. And it was you know, smart kids who were picked to go to this enrichment And I remember going over to the um, after-school meeting, and it was at Galileo High School in San Francisco. So I had to take the bus from my school to this school. And I tell you, I walked in there and I had never felt so othered in my life. And uh, just marginalized, ignored. You know, we talk about this sense of belonging and people kind of banty the term about, but you know, that experience of having that visceral sense of um, way people were interacting, both teachers and other students, you know, questioning, do you really belong here? You know, just felt unwelcoming. I stayed the whole meeting. But I tell you, I still remember making the decision on my walk back to the, um, you know, public bus stop. You know, Muni was going to pick me up. I didn't have anybody else pick me up. So I'm taking the the public transportation. And I decided not to go back. And um, I didn't even have words for why I decided not to go back. I just knew that didn't feel good. It didn't feel good. It didn't feel right. And I choose me. like, skip that. I do not need to be anywhere where I've got to edit myself, shrink myself, you know, prove that I belong there. Skip that. And that was my attitude, you know, uh, uh, when I was young, that was um, in contrast to my second experience, which was um, uh, meeting Miss McKenna in her 10th grade environmental science class. And she, this was in the 70s, right? This is, granola was new. <laughs> Co-ops, you know, tofu floating in a barrel. <laughs> that wouldn't fly now, but that's how, mm-hmm. you know, alternative approaches, that's how it was happening in California, particularly in the Bay Area, and that kind of cutting edge. She wore Birkenstocks, white woman, you know, you by all, you know, labels, we'd call her a hippie. But she was very progressive. She talks about climate change. She had us look at environmental issues around uh, environmental racism in our own neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. She uh, taught me the half-life of uh, uh, nuclear material and why we should be outraged. Like, what? It doesn't go away for how long, right? (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. she's making all these connections and she was keeping all this wonderful information it, you know, presented it to us and making it local. So when we talk about relevance, we're also talking about local. How is it relevant? Because a lot of people here are culturally responsive and they are in this, you know, heroes, holidays, somehow I need to just inspire you because I have a brown face in the materials, but it's not local. It's not in their community. It's not relevant to their context. And she did that for me, and I felt I I felt like I can be myself. I could fall in love with um, science. The other experience was I was in advanced biology, uh, you know, with a whole lot of other uh, smart kids, mostly white. Uh, And again, what I got was from both sides of that: being a girl in there, as well as being a black girl. Um, You know, having to prove yourself, and it, it just it. You cannot do your best work when you are having to prove you belong there because now people are trying to plant seeds so that you doubt yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, it stills the joy and intellectual curiosity that you bring because now your amygdala is having to like, okay, do you have to defend yourself? Is this social setting safe? Oh, is that microaggression mm-hmm. going to pop off again? So we hear people talk about the curriculum when they're not attending to the environment. Right. And so this is what fired me up is that direct experience I had and then to see it play out as I moved into education um, over and over again. And I think what gets me most um, frustrated is I started, I've been in, you know, education 30 plus years. I started really leaning into equity work in 1998. I brought with me this lens around cognition nobody else was talking about, but, you know, Mm -hmm. I was very interested in it. And some of the things that we're, you know, we talked about then when we were talking about equity and anti-racist uh uh, education and kind of implicit bias training and affinity groups well hell, we were doing that in 1999 why the hell we still at it why are white educators coming into this acting like they never known have known anything Mm -hmm. it's like we we teach people something we hold space for them and it falls out one ear Mm -hmm. goes in one and falls out the other so i really hold white educators to the standard that you have to level up your racial literacy. You have to really understand why these conditions persist in order to mm-hmm. understand how to interrupt them. So one part of culturally responsive practice is that. you know, The mm-hmm. anti-racist lens is not just to say it, I'm anti-racist, well, show me. If I come into your classroom mm-hmm. and there are no microaggressions popping off, then that's true. But if you're saying that and kids report that, nah, I don't feel safe in here. I'm just gonna mm-hmm. be quiet, get small, say, you know, stay out of harm's way, then there's a disconnect between the stuff you're saying and purporting and what you're doing. And here's the thing: educators need to not label themselves. Let the kids label you. Mm-hmm. Right? Don't tell me how mm-hmm. woke you are or how anti-racist you are. When your children say Miss so-and-so, Mr. D is doing the thing. That's when you can claim that moniker. But everything else is a pronouncement.
0: Mm-hmm. I, and I think that when we talk about labels, we're so hungry, like, oh, I'm an anti-racist educator. I'm a culturally responsive teacher. And, and it's so interesting where we're, we're hungry for that title. But what, is that, what does that even mean? We're here now in, in Black History Month, which is uh, can bring its own sets of issues, and I'm seeing our our STEM teachers. They are they're asking for scientists of color, engineers of color. Let me show a scientist of color. Let me show an engineer of color, so that my students, you know, they they can be aware. And yet, you bring up this point about safety and feeling safe. And so, how can our teachers go beyond? That, that surface of, oh, well, here's a scientist of color. Look, I, I, check, I check the box and to create that safety.
1: So I think the number one thing you do is you need to um, examine how, uh, again, I'm gonna go back to your racial literacy. If you understand how achievement gaps happen, then you won't ever open your mouth to ask for, scientists of color and if you got to go ask your game is weak like where the hell you been because when you ask that means you have there's no open google folder where you're putting it in there where you're researching where you're actually stretching yourself and no you're gonna go and ask somebody this ain't doordash and nobody bringing you nothing Mm -hmm. stop so that's a hallmark from somebody who is not as woke as they purport to be They've had an ambient, they're still kind of drowsy. And I'm hard because I will press you. You don't get to wear that moniker if you are still kind of half-stepping at it. And half-stepping means I'm trying to get these things and I am not going to stretch myself or assign myself when it's not Black History Month. I honestly don't practice Black History Month with educators because again, What it does is it feeds the wrong value set. Now, hear me well. I'm not saying that Black History Month isn't important, but know that Black History starts January 1st and ends December 31st. So if you're just coming around talking about it on February, then you didn't just told on yourself. You've outed yourself as not as woke and progressive as you purport to be. And I find white progressive educators to be most challenged in this area. Because there's a disconnect to wanting to own this label or have this identity But when you actually just turn down the volume about what people are saying and look in the classroom, it's not happening. So to even say, oh, this is how you actually create safety on a podcast that's going to last 30 minutes or more, that's not going to get it. Because if they haven't done the due diligence to understand what belonging means at this point, me giving you a tip ain't going to do it. And there's a way, and here's the thing, Lena. There's a way where we continue to do that, because Mm -hmm. in in you know this is the educational industry complex. So there are Mm -hmm. consultants out there that are making their money. Teachers pay teachers, and whatever. I'm going to give you the lesson plans. I'm going to give you the things. Well, that in itself is crippling white educators. Because what they're not doing is building their own capacity. And, you know, other educators of color. So when we think about cross-racial, right? So we have South Asian, very high performing. We have Asian, I grew up in San Francisco. So there's a lot of microaggressions toward from Asian to African American. So even when we go into STEM areas, it's not all white educators. Actually, we have a lot of Asian anti-Blackness that starts to creep up for a variety of reasons. So we all have to check ourselves, right, in terms of what we're doing. So this idea of handing out tips, like that tip is actually going to do something for you, that is not. The press is give yourself 90 days to level up. Mm -hmm. And 90 days is only going to get you to the starting point. Open your Google folder. And make sure you are now going to be pulling some things together. And, and here's the other thing I'll say. That I'll say that you see, it's so easy for me to get worked up.
0: I love it. Bring it.
1: You, can, you know, for, for STEM and science educators, it's not just what you're putting, representation that you're putting in the curriculum. And I am not diminishing that. But I'm saying, not saying that that's not the most high leverage thing. It's creating that environment where kids feel safe and to to explore, show up like they're showing up so you can look at language. This is true in math and in science. So when you are using language in different ways, right, rather than a teacher understanding, you know, contrast of analysis to say this is the way the student speaks, maybe in African-American vernacular. Let me help them translate that. Not give it up, not you're wrong, so now here, this is the, you know, the way you should speak so that you can be accepted. No, but it's a both and. But when we're talking about science, because we know literacy in science, right, that there's a thing that's called disciplinary literacy so that when i'm using a word in science it may have a different meaning and has a different meaning in math and Anne has in english and i don't see a lot of teachers take that time to actually say how do we actually create a more uh um uh, diverse linguistic approach to STEM education so that the student finds their way in and is actually building capacity because they have two ways now and that they can move quite easily back and forth across them. That's just one aspect of creating an intellectually safe environment. Too often, educators think it's like, ah, I got to be friends with you. We got to do some handshakes at the door. We're going to sing Kumbaya, but they haven't attended to these other things that actually trigger the amygdala. Hi,
0: it's Lena, and I want to tell you all about our STEM for Real network. In our network, our educators, or who we like to call Netties, incorporate culturally responsive science and math teaching using lesson study. Visit us at www.stemforreal.org forward slash partnership. That's stem number four real.org forward slash partnership and learn more about how your school or district can partner with us and become our newest Nettie for real. Wow. And, and I think what, what you bring up is, is such a good point. Let's say you're the teacher that is, you're doing the work. You've got your Google folder. You've been uh, leveling up. You're doing your, your researching and all that. And yet, let's say this teacher, Teacher X, is in a system where the culture just isn't there. It's not staff wide. It's not district wide. It's not school wide. And what can what can happen when you're in this system when you're stuck in this system how can our stem teachers you know what do
1: they do they
0: go from within do they just kind of throw it all up
1: i i you know i i was about to say you've never heard me on a podcast talking to teachers because i say close your damn door and do the damn thing right we are too worried about things that you know when's the last time the principal actually came through your classroom right i'm not saying ignore the principle but what i am saying is we have a lot more autonomy than we feel we have particularly when it comes to teaching children the proof of the pudding is in the eating is how the saying actually goes so what that means is you know you go to sam's club costco and you came in to get you know more toilet paper and paper towels like we all did during the pandemic and you leave with your your dry goods, but you also leave with five pounds of Polish sausage under your arms. Like you didn't come in for that. How did that happen? Because those samples in the aisle had you tasting something that made you go back and look for it. That's the way we have to be when we are talking about being social justice educators. The social justice isn't just in the curriculum showing scientists of color. The social justice is my kids are gonna come out here smart af and the proof of that pudding is you will never take smart out of their brains Mm -hmm. and if we don't see that as the key thing and nobody no policy is preventing you from doing that you have much more leeway and if somebody comes in and says hey what are you doing look my reading scores went up a grade and a half for all my students who are behind Mm -hmm. and every teacher is a reading teacher language matters when it comes to processing information so all of that to say that little mini rant to say lena that i think it's a distraction when we say hey it's the culture of the school isn't doing it and what about what's the district i mean how many times are we actually interfacing with those people. So keep the main thing the main thing. Dr. Richard Elmore talks about the instructional core, the teacher, the student, and the content, always in a dynamic dance. And this is why creating that environment of intellectual safety, intellectual curiosity, and creating the the opportunity for students to to do complex things pull things apart put them together test it out uh um figure out things but we have a pedagogy of compliance even in our science classrooms where there's a lab do -hmm. the lab now pour this in now so Mm -hmm. now we're habituating students to this so the the creativity that they bring to figuring out right they're not allowed to we Need all brains on deck. We're gonna have some serious environmental issues that we have Mm -hmm. to solve. We cannot afford to have a pedagogy of compliance. And any teacher who understands, oh, that's what's happening in my school, right? It's just about control and it's about kids doing this. And what we know is the more melanated those children are, Mm -hmm. the more control. So even what looks like science (laughs) is laughable. And it's laughable because it is not complex. It's not asking an inquiry question. Mm -hmm. It is not local and contextualized, and therefore it is not relevant. So we keep talking about culturally relevant and culturally responsive as if it's just something we plop into the, the curriculum to make kids feel excited or sometimes to make them feel motivated because we have these ideas that they're disengaged because they don't see themselves you know people of color have been going to public institutions for a long time and we've excelled long before there was any brown faces in the curriculum i think we're a little more Mm -hmm. resilient a little more intelligent than to somehow be disengaged because there's no brown uh, uh face listen Education has always been the liberatory path for people mm-hmm. of color. And so, again, how do you make sure that that path doesn't feel like it's uphill? Because we're going to go uphill anyway. But mm-hmm. how is it instead a path that is well worn? You have companionship on the path. There are interesting things to do along the path. I sometimes imagine myself with Lewis and Clark. You know, I grew up in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. We always had to do the missions, right? And and now it's like the the (laughs) utmost settler mentality that you could ever have, right? Study those missions. Hey, do you really understand what happened at those missions? Like, we never got Mm -hmm. that lesson. But my mother made sure we got that lesson. There were some other folks in the community that made sure we got those lessons. But to me, the idea of exploring, you know, finding the different uh, plant life, what animal life, what patterns. We have pumas in California and, you know, these are the mountain lions. And every now and then they come down. So, you know, we started studying them. Why do they come down? How many are them? You know, the, the, the fact that we're living with nature. I would do a lot of work uh, in recent years with teachers in Alaska. Native, Alaska native teachers brought such a wealth about land and land management that people were Mm -hmm. using 10,000 years. So what it meant is they had science, they had things. And and rather than just mention that, well, what is the science that they were using? Mm -hmm. We don't need to just mention it and then keep moving, right? We need to actually use those systems of learning because they served people very well for a very long time. So yeah. all of that to say is there's a lot of work to do. People can pick one area that they want to get better at in relationship to making sure that students are positioned to feel that sense of belonging, to engage in complex thinking and complex work, productive struggle, because it's a productive struggle that actually builds the brain power. hmm right and it has to be in order to actually make that engaging it has to be contextualized localized and relevant
0: yes yes and i and i want to circle back to what you said about thinking about culturally responsive teaching as as just something to plop in you know like oh check i did it you know i saw on twitter someone had said uh, i did my culturally responsive teaching for the for the day check and and going beyond This this checkbox, because one thing that you do in your book is you really highlight this concept of independent thinkers independent critical thinkers and and engaging that rigor in our students, and that is really what we're thinking about and talking about when we wanna create culturally responsive teaching in our classrooms.
1: Yeah, uh, and here's what I would add to that is, this is why the framework is called ready for rigor because the, when, when you understand how white supremacy culture developed public schooling to sort and underdevelop the cognitive capacity of certain groups of kids, I mean, I'm not making this up it's in there in the record, Thomas Jefferson talked about it, Horace Mann talked about it, right? This is why we had segregation. This is why we had indigenous people not being able to go to school. I mean, some some children were literally banned, Mexicans, you know, because people forget that we are in Mexico and then we drew a line. <laughs> it didn't like mm-hmm. Mexicans came over here, like, you know, okay, settlers and colonizers, you know what you did. Right mm-hmm. in terms of, that, but those folks who found themselves so, on the other side of a border now weren't allowed to go to school, and we know why. The, we had illiteracy laws. Why? Because when you learn to read, the structures of your brain actually get stronger. The neural pathways strengthen, you have more gray matter, myelination happens, so you can actually do thinking faster and processing information. So what I talk about is not independent thinkers. You won't find that piece in my book. You will find me talking about independent students who can process information. Information processing is the foundation of any student's ability to do critical thinking or any kind of thinking. So if we just talk about, oh, independent thinker, we fall into a pedagogy of compliance versus I actually have to help the students process information more effectively. Most teachers don't get enough um, grounding in the science of learning and cognitive neuroscience, despite the fact that that's supposed to be what we're good at, developing young brains and minds. We don't know, you know, we cover our content and follow the pacing guide, right? Social Mm -hmm. justice-oriented educators do not bow to a pacing guide. Mm -hmm. So the reality is you cannot have that focus on helping students become cognitively independent learners if you're trying to follow a pacing guide. Now, if you had a social justice-minded leader who actually created an innovative responsive pacing guide, then you actually, for the purpose of acceleration, then they would be able to use culturally responsive practices to that end. So the understanding the different facets of culturally responsive teaching mean that I am trying to create an environment where the brain is calm and ready. I am providing the right kind of challenge, but I'm also teaching students learn how to learn processes as well as how to meet the content standards, right? Here's the learning target, but we got to have learning targets for learning how to learn. Right. And so as we do that, the student is able to any time we're going to get information, we we know how to process it. And here's why I tell you that is so important for STEM and STEAM science and math is the, the very idea that we are in a knowledge based era and all information is going to be obsolete in three to five years. So if the student doesn't know how to take in new information, learn it, understand how it's different from the old, be able to let the old go and then keep innovating, then they're gonna become stagnant. We see this, you know, older people find it very hard to orient themselves around technology. That's why, because when it's happened the particular way for a long time, they don't get acclimated to new ways. So learning how to learn is the master skill of the 21st century. And that's the thing we don't see happening in that. So again, people get enamored with, I wanted scientists of color, right? Versus I'm actually giving you the power master skill here of improving your ability to process information at faster and faster rates.
0: You know, I think that it's so so much of this information is actually getting out there. You know, I I see I see your book in book studies, and you know, let's let's read Zaretta Hammond's book and let's let's do this as a staff. And you we see the information out there, and yet, you know, what is happening? One of the books that I actually have my pre-service teachers read is, of course, your book as well. And yet some of the issues that come up has been our pre-service teachers entering these institutions and uh, kind of having again that pushback and as a brand new teacher dealing with that pushback from parents from the school from the staff how can our pre-service teachers what is the future of our stem teachers especially going into culturally responsive teaching
1: yeah, I think that you're not, we're not going into culturally responsive teaching. So even how we talk about it, even as those of us leading the work has to shift. It's not a thing. We don't go in and out of it. All instruction is culturally responsive to the questions to whose cultures are responding. So the idea then that it's a, a lot of our pre-service teachers are being kind of taught that it's a thing. Like, and it's a strategy. So now people are reading my book, but they're strategy stripping. Meaning, okay, yeah, she says something, 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 but what, what's the thing I'm going to do? As if the thing is, it, it, then it just becomes a one-off activity. So information is not transformation. And what I don't see is enough people moving beyond a book study so that they're actually saying, let's do some inquiry. Let's do some collaborative inquiry. So that we are actually levering it. And I'm not talking about a weak-ass PDSA cycle. Oh, we do that. If your children are reading two great levels behind, then you need to do something else. Because I hear too many people like, oh, we do that. We read the book. <laughs> like, you know, it's not a Vulcan mind meld, y'all. You, reading the book is not going to immediately translate into doing knowing how to do that thing. Do you know how to be the personal trainer of students' cognition? versus talking about culturally responsive. Every time I say I'm being culturally responsive, you have taken the student out and you've made it about you. This ain't about you. So every time I hear educators, adults say that, what I notice is the student is no longer in the mix. It's about what they're doing. Only the learner learns you're not getting the student to do a new thing not because you're forcing them not because you're withholding points not because of cajoling but because the student has partnered with you to want to level up and be a powerful lover they are excited about learning If you can't get that to happen then what we know about how change happens and how we improve then that kind of you know, energy, the torque that's needed to get to the next level of something is not going to happen. Vygotsky talked about it as the zone of proximal development. You can't push somebody into that zone. You know, Serena Williams steps into it because she continues to want to be the best. Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods is back to golfing after that, you know, horrific, you know, uh, accident he had. Can you imagine what it must have been for him to move himself past the painful points where he's like okay i'll never be or this is good enough he's like oh no 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 i'm going back to that status. If we don't create these environments where students can do that it's not going to work i'll t- give you another example, a culture of errors. Science is the place where we learn from errors, but when you look into the classroom, the culture of errors is not there. And the problem with just talking about culturally responsive teaching is when I bring up, how do you create in a culture of errors, teachers that look at me like I have a third eye. To say, well, we're not talking about culturally responsive teaching. No, we are. Dr. Gloria ladson billings one of her most popular and enduring articles is called, but that's just good teaching. So what we continue to do is we continue to talk about culturally responsive teaching like it's a thing, that it only talks about race or diversity or or challenges or social justice topics versus have I created a classroom that has a culture of errors and I've taught students to use errors as information. Let's learn from mistakes and actually now create time so we can step back and look at our mistakes. This is what real scientists do people. Real science students do not sit around talking about, is this culturally responsive? They break down the pieces and to say, I need to have that piece in. Are my kids talking? Do I have space and time? Have I organized this classroom so they can talk? If you're still talking about, is it culturally responsive? Then you are not even on the road yet. Because you haven't broken it down into what will I need to do to get to that next level of capacity so I can support them?
0: Wow. what and what a what a place to really leave our listeners in in this way to think about, I, I want to highlight again what you said, do the damn thing. It's time <laughs> to do the damn thing, right. and we're going to do it. Good teaching is good teaching. So I am honored. Our listeners are honored. Thank you so much, Soretta, for your your insight and to really bring your book to life on this podcast.
1: Well, thank you for just letting me go on my mini rants.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. We love it. We're all about keeping it for real here.
1: Absolutely. I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you again. And I can't wait for the next time we get to interact. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, Lena. You were very generous just to let me kind of go off. So absolutely do you know before we go do you know these two books
0: black brown Bruce, how radical racialized stem education
1: stifles innovation no Oh, you I should would. read this. You should and and offer it. So when you put out this podcast, I'd love for you to be mentioning this. So I'm going to make sure you have this title. This is really powerful because it talks about some of the linguistic issues. It gets mm-hmm. down to some of those issues that's beyond just lesson plans and putting mm-hmm. diverse faces in curriculum. It's how are you creating the right conditions? The other one is science in the city. Oh, the- yes.
0: Got it right here. There you go.
1: This is good. These two together, then definitely throw this and add this, because I think this was going to be really, really a powerful companion to that one. Definitely.
0: We're going to add that in the show notes as well. Fantastic. Awesome. All right. Thank you
1: dear. so much. This We're was so lovely. Was so nice to be in the space with you. And yeah, let's just find some time for some social time just to kick it. Yeah, I,
0: I know. know. I know. We definitely have to catch up in your new state, too.
1: That's right. I'm here for Nice and stuff.
0: All right, right, dear. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you again.
1: You're welcome. Bye bye. Okay,
0: bye. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching STEM For Real, where as you can see, we keep it for real for our STEM educators. If you enjoyed it, make sure that you are subscribed for our future content and please leave us a five-star rating and review. I hope you loved hearing about the why and now let's talk about the how. Let's partner together and do this work. Visit our website at www.stemforreal.org forward slash partnership. That's stem4real.org forward slash partnership. Until then, keep teaching STEM for real.